We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to Sword of Cinema. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Ricky D. This week, I was thinking about Dune because we just talked about Dune. And I was thinking about how one of the things I actually did really like about Dune um, is the fact that it sort of, to an extent, uh, lets you be an adult and decide how to feel about the characters. Uh, And that made me think about a movie that's been on my list to talk about for a very long time. And that is the 1992... I guess let's call it let's let's start out by calling it a neo-noir or crime thriller. One False Move, directed by Carl Franklin and uh, co-written by Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson. Uh, let's hear a clip and come back and talk about it. And uh, I'll let you know why I thought it was worth pulling from the ether. There was no fear in Star City, Arkansas. No murder. No killers. Until now. There is violence we've ever seen. What's the story on this Star City thing? You think it'd be a wild goose chase if you went down there? Welcome to Star City, boys! For Chief Dale Dixon, it's the chance of a lifetime. Follow me! After 10 years of busting people, toms, and stop sign runners, I'd kind of like to take a crack at the big time. These are dangerous people we're dealing with. Get your hands up! Last night, some folks killed a Texas State Trooper. Looks like they're headed our way, boys. You know, I've never seen Dale this excited before. He's waiting on the bad guys we can't wait for Christmas. But his first shot at the big time. I think he looks at y'all like you're some kind of heroes. Well, we're we're far from that. Might be his last. We're gonna be cool. Damn, this could be a big one. We're gonna play it by ear. Somebody's gonna die. We're not gonna kill him unless we have to. <laughs> Sometimes, the difference between living and dying is... One false move. Welcome to Sorted Cinema. Ricky, how you doing? I'm not bad. I really like this movie. Oh, so do I. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, like, I'm a huge fan of the director, and I believe... I put this really high up on my list of best movies released in 1992, although I didn't put it at number two, which I think Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel placed it in their number two, number one spot. They were big, huge fans of this movie, from my understanding. Yeah, they were huge boosters of it. It was not a commercial hit, um, from what I can tell, although it did have the quirk of being intended 
originally for being a straight to video release, uh, but then was able to sort of gin up a, a theatrical release, which I sort of remember hearing about as being something that happened every once in a while, but really not very often. According to Wikipedia, it was they just used the term positive word of mouth. I don't know whether that's press or audiences or whatever. Uh, either way, it got kicked up the ladder. Um, they found basically some some Hollywood bigwig found a slot uh, in the theatrical window. In this case, it was May 8th, 1992, and just said, you know what? We think we've got some room in that window because we think that new blockbuster is maybe a little weak with over 18s or whatever. And that's when they decided to put one false move in movie theaters. But apparently it did not quite make back its budget, which was really not that high. But that was not Carl Franklin's fault because I think Carl Franklin directed a kick-ass little movie. Um, I was flitting back and forth between whether I should pick this or Devil in a Blue Dress, um, which is a very different, uh, despite being made around the same time, having the same director and both being kind of neo-noirs, they're very different movies and they're both worth talking about. And actually, I'm, I feel like I'm teasing the audience because Devil in a Blue Dress is probably the more conventionally fun of the two movies. It's not as dark. This movie is very dark. And uh, it, especially the opening 10 minutes are quite brutal. Uh, and uh, it sort of feels like it like the uh, I, throughout this uh, throughout this film on this viewing, I kept thinking it's sort of like an entire season of Justified crammed into one movie uh just in terms of all the how high the stakes are and also just how uh how how gritty and strange and twisted things get uh, the, the movie really has to, into my mind an elmore leonard feeling uh in a lot of different ways although it's not as humorous as a lot of elmore leonard stuff although it is not humorless uh anyway lots to talk about ricky what do you love about one false move I mean, everything. There isn't one bad scene. There's not one bad decision made in the making of this film. There's not one misstep. It's in the same category of movies like A Simple Plan or Blood Simple. It's a neo-noir. It's dark. It's gritty. It's well acted. It's about characters, character over action. Mm. And I think what I really dig about the movie is how it has two groups of people that we follow. Six, pe six people in total. Two trios and they're so similar yet so completely opposite so you have one trio which is the criminals and the criminals are basically one white guy billy bob thornton and two people of color and you have three cops of which it's two white cops and one black cop and i love the way the film tackles racism and mm -hmm. thematically it's about a lot of things like love guilt relationships how you can't run away from your past, how your past will haunt you, how something that happens in the past reappears in present day and leads to tragedy. Mm -hmm. And I love how it shows the difference and yet the similarities between the city and the country, black folk and white folk living in the US of A, male versus female. And there's so many twists and unexpected twists, not cheesy twists, just like twists throughout the entire film that you don't see coming. And you kind of know a lot of times what's going to happen because you say it's really violent and it is violent, especially that opening scene. Mm -hmm. But there are times where you know something really bad is going to happen. But then the director doesn't show you that right away. He'll cut 
they'll cut to a reaction shot or a different scene and come back to it. And mm-hmm. so it sort of amplifies the dread and the suspense. But I think this is a well-directed film and it's 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 smart, it's mature, and it takes its time. It's a crime thriller. It's a bit of a Western, but it's mm-hmm. not really interested in big action set pieces. It's really about characters and character is action. I think you should tell people what the movie's about because the thing about One False Move, like most of his movies, I feel like a lot of people haven't seen it like most of Carl Franklin's movies, it becomes sort of like a footnote, which is really sad because this is a really talented director who made some amazing movies. By the way, I just have to say, even though it's very typical of the era, I really love the poster. I just, I love the t- the huge title overlaid against the, uh, the Western sky with the time with the, uh, with the tagline in tiny little letters. <laughs> oh God. It's really good. Uh, that poster just makes me kind of, n- I have to say it, it does make me nostalgic for the mid nineties that just, but specifically just for the, um, you know, around this time you were still getting movies like this, these R rated, you know, gritty, you know, neo-noir crime thriller, Western hybrids. I'm thinking of movies like this. I'm thinking of movies like breakdown with Kurt Russell, that movie fucking rocks. Um, we need to talk about that at some point if we haven't already. Um, we uh it's anyway this is what this movie is you know red rock west by john Dahl, uh, which i actually think is just okay but it's a, just such a fun movie to have on you know uh these movies have amazing vibes i think one false move has sort of the i think it has the, sort of the darkest and bluest vibe i think of any of these movies you know a movie like fargo which this has some similarities to Fargo has some bittersweetness here and there, but mostly it's <clears throat> mostly it's a lot of humor and it's a lot of irony. Whereas this movie is very earnest and the feelings that it's wallowing around in are very conflicted and, and, and very difficult to think about. The violence is grim when it happens and it front, it does something strange that we'll talk about later, but I, it really front loads the violence I don't. I really. I. I can't think of another movie from this era that does this, where most of the grit, like the the most grueling violence, is right there in the first eight or nine minutes, and then after that, it's the film is really like ninety five percent dialogue. Genuinely, after that, there is there are some extended scenes of suspense, but they're pretty much silent, with just diegetic sound and like the occasional bit of music coming up. But there's really not a lot of embellishment. There's no fat on this movie, which uh, I feel like is something that I end up saying about a lot of movies that I pick. And maybe that says something about uh, what I value in a, in a screenplay. But, you know, you, like you said, there's there genuinely is really only six characters, seven if you count the one who shows up to have a, l- a little speech in the last scene, which is a scene we will talk about later when we get into the spoilery bit of the episode. Uh, in the questions um it's so economical i think every performance is really good maybe some are are i think some are maybe a little bit more obviously good or like demonstratively good or fun than others but i think the whole ensemble is really solid you still haven't said what the movie is about okay fair enough i mean really i i think the reason i'm dancing around is because the plot really is dead simple uh bill paxton plays a small town cop in is it arkansas 
uh, do I have that correct? St- yes, uh, Star City, Arkansas, um, where he is the uh, the local sheriff. He's a married man with an eight year old child, uh, seemingly very wholesome, but a bit of a good old boy who's a bit you know rowdy around the edges. Whatever, he's meant to be charming, etc. Um, and uh, as you alluded to, Ricky, uh, there's another set of characters. These criminals, played by Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, Cinda Williams, who I don't remember seeing in another film, uh, to be honest, she's great. And Michael Beach, who gets the uh, the least dialogue full of these characters as Pluto. And really, this is just a, a, a trio of sort of mismatched individuals who are on their way to a destination and are uh, killing a whole lot of people on their way there because they just can't seem to not do that. Uh, and it's uh, it ends up being about the this this collision of uh, these LAPD officers who end up making the other triumvirate up. Sorry, let me say that again. Who end up making up the other triumvirate with Bill Paxton? That's Earl Billings and uh, Jim Metzler as the other as the uh, two LAPD cops. They think he's a little bit of a hick, and he's sort of in awe of them, and it sort of uh, turns into a fish out of water situation uh, that ends up. And this all sounds very sort of conflict free. Um, and, but then there is a, a, a fairly, there's a, a pretty meaty twist about ha- a pretty much exactly halfway through the film that makes you think about the Bill Paxton character in a very different way. And, and with his, uh, and of his connections with these other characters uh, in a way that I think is really, um, uh, I, th- I think you're right uh, about how the film deploys twists. I think it does them in a straightforward way that doesn't doesn't goose them up too much, but also just lets you it lets the implications of the new information settle in nicely. You know, what's interesting is I'm watching a movie for a second time this week, and I realize about 18 minutes into the movie, maybe 20 minutes into the movie, there's a scene in which Bill Paxton's character he I think he stops in front of a gas station or a, a, a corner store. And you see a man walk out with a little boy. Do you know what scene I'm talking about? And someone drives yeah, yeah, by and yeah. they start talking to Bill Paxton's character, whose name is Dale Hurricane Dixon, which, by the way, is a great name. So they're talking to Hurricane. And he gets distracted and he's staring at the little boy. And you won't understand why he gets distracted and starts staring at the little boy until the very end mm-hmm. of the movie. I would say like like close to the end of the film. Yeah. And it's like little things like that that you only pick up and notice on upon a second viewing. So it's one of those movies that's actually a lot better on a second viewing because it's just so smart about how it tells a story and fleshes out its characters. And the reason why I think it's important to actually talk about what the movie's about is because you're right. It puts all of the violence at the beginning of the movie or the most violence, like the horrific scenes, the brutal violence, the brutal murders and killings. It's all at the start of the film. And I think the reason why that works so well in the favor of the movie is because it really makes the viewer understand how dangerous these three people are. And they position the lady, they they position her in in a way where it makes us, the viewers, think that she is maybe a victim and she clearly isn't as bad as the two men who she just so happens to be around for whatever reason. There's got to be some kind of like reason for it. Like maybe, you know, I don't know, whatever. But she ends up like doing something about midway through the film that completely makes us change the way we view her. And mm-hmm. in some ways, we no longer sympathize for her. 
because she does something really, really bad. Yeah, well, the, the question of who we sympathize with or who we don't sympathize with, I think, is a really interesting one for this movie. I can't guarantee that it, that uh, everyone will agree. Uh, and in fact, I'm sure people won't agree. Uh, really, the the movie becomes sort of a quest for sympathy. Like you, you're especially by the three quarter mark. So many of the characters are so morally compromised that uh, or worse obviously some of them uh, seem outright evil at times like cartoonishly evil perhaps i think i think it's a quest for understanding because we're yeah. trying to understand where these characters are coming from and why they do what they do yeah but i think also as viewers we are looking to find like okay is there anyone i can root for um and or or should i even want there to be someone that i root for i think this is something that i think uh, anyone watching this movie will be thinking about um, and I think the answers will vary wildly depending on the viewer because the stuff that is actually making up the things that these characters are thinking and feeling about are really loaded and difficult and um, and would not be, you know, you, you imagine yourself in the position of particularly Bill Paxton's character or having to be in that situation. And you think, dear Lord, how would I handle that? How would uh you know, how would I feel in, you know, being in this awful position that, it, you know, that I put myself in? Uh, I don't know. That, that's that's the way I watch movies like this is so, sort of in terms of this emotional engagement, I guess. And I think it, the movie, the movie sort of it's it, it's interesting. It front loads the violence and it back loads the emotion, um, which I think actually mostly works really well. Well, because at the start of the film, they kill everyone inside the apartment. And so all of the adults, except for the kid who Fantasia ends up saving the kid because she doesn't tell her partners played by Billy Bob Thornton and Michael Beach, Pluto and Ray. She doesn't tell Pluto and Ray that the kid is in the bedroom because she's afraid that they're going to harm the kid or kill the kid. So the kid is left behind and when they they leave the scene of the crime. And then so we understand later on that, OK, not only is she somewhat of a good person because she saves the kids. But also it's because she has a kid who she hasn't yeah. seen in five years, who's the same age. And then when we get the scene that I was referring to before, where we see Bill Paxton get distracted by a kid at the uh, gas station slash corner store, wherever the fuck he is. That kid just so happens to be her kid that we learn about later and also just so happens to be Bill Paxton's kid, Dale's mm -hmm. kid, Hurricane's kid. But the way... It, the, the way the film is structured, it's so smart because we don't yet know that that is his son. We don't yet know that it's her son. But the scene comes at a time where Hurricane knows about the crime that happened in L.A. So we, mm -hmm. as the viewers, initially think that he's staring at the kid just because he's thinking of the horrific crime that happened in L.A. When that's actually not the case. Indeed, he's staring uh, at the kid because it's his kid, or at least he thinks it's his kid, but is in denial and does not want to admit that it's his kid because he had a relationship and affair with her Fantasia when she was underage. The, I mean, this is this may as well be the first time and probably not the last time I say right here, um, the screen, the original screenplay by uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson is great. It's a really good script. I just I love the way there are a few things here and there that I'm not wild about or that I think are a little bit Hollywood or a little bit whatever. But in general, I just think it's such a it's such a low bullshit script. I think that's the main thing I would use to describe it. Yeah. You know, what's great about the the script and the characters and the way it's written is, for example, in 
a lot of movies, most movies, when a character is racist, they're like straight up like hardcore racist, right? In this mm-hmm. movie, it's sort of like this passive aggressive racism. It's yeah. sort of like the type of racism where the person doesn't realize that they're being racist. And and what I mean by that, it's 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 it feels more natural and real because most people, when they do act racist in public, they yeah. don't realize they're acting racist. Like no one really goes out of their way to act racist in public in 2021, at least not like where I'm from. Like maybe there are some places in like yeah. the United States or North America or wherever where they do it. But you know, most people are aware of their surroundings and they don't want people to necessarily know their like political, personal, religious views, whatever it is. Sure. But in this movie, for example, the cop, Dale, once again, Hurricane played by Bill Paxton, he's at a dinner, well, barbecue, and he ha- accidentally sort of like says the N word while he's sitting next to the black cop from Los Angeles. But he doesn't say it in a way where like he's it's not like he's saying it in a way where he's hating on black people. He's just saying it because that's the way he was raised, but it's still racist, but he doesn't even yeah. understand that he's being racist. It's uh it's a it's a really interesting scene because after that you sort of uh you see the uh, one of his buddies and the other cops they have sort of a sidebar afterwards where they talk about his behavior and uh, and they have this exact conversation where they talk about well, you know, it's just how he was raised, it's not meant to be hurtful, et cetera. and like, you know, and the cop you know, basically seems to get it. Obviously, you know, probably <laughs> there are still misgivings or whatever, but it's it's I feel like it's rare, especially in a movie like this, to just have characters talk in a very manner of factly way uh, about racism and like experience, the, you know, their their respective experiences of it and like, you know, social mores, etc. I don't know. I just think, again, it's a very it's it's very low bullshit. It feels like what would really happen. Yeah, for sure. And I also like the fact that although like I do think that we do end up rooting and caring about Hurricane. Like, I think he's the character that we latch onto just because Bill Paxton is such an amazing actor, but he's also very charismatic. Mm-hmm. And the problem with Fantasia is we might still root for her, care for her, and want her to escape, like not escape because she's not a prisoner, but get away from these two men who she hangs out with. At the same time, like she's, she's sort of like, she doesn't really play the victim because she has no problem, for example, to, seducing Billy Bob Thurston's character throughout the entire film. Like she has no problem going on the road with them. She has no problem pulling a gun and spoiler killing a cop. She's the one who pulls the trigger and kills a cop. Mm-hmm. Contemporary audiences may feel differently about than uh, 1994 audiences did. But anyway, right. And you know, what's crazy is this movie was actually released. I think days after the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Really? Yes, Damn, like that's the, what I find crazy. Like this movie didn't make more money because you figured more people would go see the movie. Well, unfortunately, it was a movie set mainly in Arkansas and Texas, and not set in L.A. But yeah, they they I'm sure there's something they could have done to uh, to play that up if they were uh, if 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 they'd been a little bit more crass and had better timing. Um, yeah, it seems to, I, I'm not sure why the movie wasn't a hit, uh, despite like. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me if I was if if I was in their position, um, you know, intending this for a video for a home video release. I can absolutely imagine it testing well and people responding to it well. I'm not sure why it didn't translate to a mass uh, to a little bit more of a mass audience. For some, um, I'd, I'd be curious to know why that is. The movie was released theatrically, but only in a few like cities. So it's not like it was released all across North America on like 500 different screens where it can make a ton right. of money. 
I mean, let's face it, even now in 2021, like decades later, Carl Franklin is still not a director that most people know of, which is sad. Billy Bob was still not at the height of his career. And like, I, don't, I think this is before he ever got nominated for an Oscar. Bill Paxton was in Near Dark and like, I guess, Aliens, but like. Yeah, I mean, B- Bill Paxton was a uh, a reliable leading man uh, in genre movies for like 20 years uh but he was never i don't think he was ever thought of as bankable but you know he seems like the sort of guy everyone loves working with uh that's at least the impression that i always got from reading profiles etc because he was like he was like it's a side character in like the terminator he was in weird science but he always had like a small role like in aliens he did play private hudson Mm -hmm. but again aliens it was more about cameron and Sigourney Weaver, and there were so many characters in that movie that he didn't really stick out. Yeah. And so to me, this is really his breakout role in terms of like showing his chops as an actor. Uh, well, all I can tell you is that it's a, vi- I mean, is it the, is it the single best Bill Paxton performance? Probably not. Uh, but it's a very good one. And I, th- I think, um, Again, this is a movie that treats you like an adult, and it lets Bill Paxton's uh, it lets him be charming, charismatic, and you know to really uh, to project uh, a lot of emotion from his big vulnerable, his big goofy vulnerable sort of um, pup, sort of like you know kind of puppy like face in in a way, um, if you know what I mean. He he grew up in a small town, and even though he's in a small town, he's still like the big fish. He's a big fish swimming in a small pond. He wants yeah. to swim in a bigger pond. He wants to go to Los Angeles. He wants to uh, – what does he say? I actually wrote it down one second. Yeah, he he's, says, he's, um, he's sick of being like King Dick in a pond of like four people. As he said it, he wants to take a crack at the big time. But the thing is, I think he's actually smart enough and – and, and good enough as an actual like police officer to be successful in L.A. So when the big city cops look at him, they frown down on him like they, they they they're condescending. They don't think he's good enough. They don't think he has what it takes. But I think he would. I think he he's still naive and he still has a lot to learn. But I think if he were to move to the big city, I think he would actually make a good, a good cop, a great cop. And I think because he's actually a good man, like he has a good heart. I don't think he would become sort of like a corrupt cop. I think it would actually be a really great cop in a big city, but he's maybe never going to get to the big city. You don't think so? I think so. Well, with you, you could you could say that, but you'd have to put a big fucking asterisk on it because you're talking about the same guy who, you know, arrested, arrested and then had sex with a 17 year old, possibly while she was in his custody. We don't actually know. You know, that's is that great cop behavior? I think that's just regular cop behavior. Yeah, but the thing is, is that we don't really know the specifics and the details between him and her. We know she was 17. We know he was a cop. Yes, which is enough, really. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not great. It's not a great look. But we only learned this at the end of the movie, though. That is why when you're watching a movie, you like his character. Mm-hmm. And you feel for him, especially like, you know, for example, the scene when he walks into the diner and he overhears the two cops making fun of them. I mean, you feel sorry for the guy. 
like they all have flaws, but like big flaws, right? Like I've never like done anything that these people have done. Thank God, right? Like you know, we all we've yeah. all made mistakes, but I've never like nothing like yeah. a minor or shot someone in the head or like assassinated yeah, yeah, someone or sold drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you get to the end of the film, like you feel like he's the one character in the movie that doesn't really have a big flaw, and it turns out he does. But that's what I dig about the end of the movie. Yeah, and I I think that um, as this is all happening, um, the screenplay and Franklin are are folding in all these ideas about, uh, as you were saying, about race and about gender and privilege and control. Um, But it, for the most part, it is not beating you over the head with it. It's pretty much, really, most of it is contained to one very impactful conversation uh, between uh, Bill Paxton's character and Cindy Williams's character that sort of unfolds over a, a period late in the film, which is really like that, uh, that whole sequence does a lot of heavy lifting for the last act. And I think it, that I think both actors do a great job. It, it, it's, it's, it's actually, if, if you're going to feel sorry for any of the characters in a film, by the end of the movie, you're going to feel most sorry for, well, clearly the kid whose mom gets shot and, you know, whatever, like at the end of the film, like Fantasia's son. But you're also going to feel sorry for Dale's wife and child because, again, what's great about the director of this movie is she's always in the background. Like the, mm-hmm. the wife and yeah. child are always in the background. Like there, there is a scene where they're having a barbecue and she's sitting next to him at, at, the, at the table. Okay, fine. But there's a lot of scenes where there's shots in a house and you see her and the child in the background in the second room like from a distance and that's because he's so far detached from his own family like he clearly doesn't even really seem to care much about his family like i'm sure he cares about them but he really would care more about going to la to become a big city yeah he seems to be performing being a father and he seems to be this is the other thing that once you know everything that that there is to know about his character everything the movie tells us it really reframes his whole folksy uh, persona where he's like a good old boy who runs around doing good old boy things and is just like, you know, uh, happy to be a country, a country bumpkin uh, because you know that actually, you know, these, these cops come in, they have their perceptions. Their perception of him is that he doesn't really know sin. He doesn't really know. He doesn't really know degradation and crime, but actually he knows degradation and crime quite, quite well because in his own way, he's done degradation and crime. Um, and when, when you know that, of course it completely, it completely, uh, it not only reorients your view of the character, it reorients your, your position against them. Um, you know, if you know, if you know what I'm saying, and I think that the way I think, uh, I think a lot of viewers will spend the first half of the, the film confused about their position in relation to it. And I think it really only comes into focus or at that halfway mark when you find out, uh, the truth of, uh, the existence of uh, Fantasia's son and the truth of its parentage. And I think that snaps the entire movie into focus in a really beautiful way. Yeah. I also think that this movie could have been and should have been a bigger hit because in the very same year we had Quentin Tarantino breakout with Reservoir Dogs. And I kind of feel like back in the 90s, if people were to tell you know, the common like movie buffs, hey, hey you got to watch this movie, it's sort of like a Tarantino like film, everybody would mm-hmm. run to watch it. And I think this is the kind of movie that like Tarantino would fall in love with because I think it does everything Tarantino would want to do like 10 times better than what he actually does. Like in well, terms it, of like it, directing the actors, the dialogue, 
Uh, and, you know, I actually wrote an article uh, about Reservoir Dogs on the website a while back. And I still, to this day, think that in many ways, it's Tarantino's best film because it's so tight and the way it's structured and every single camera shot is so meticulously placed. And there's like not one bad camera shot in that film. I feel this movie is so similar. Like, like you know, everyone always talks about cinematography and they always think about like flashy camera work. And that's not what cinematography is. Like there's more to cinematography. And the thing about this movie is everything from the lighting to the camera compositions to the framing to, you know, like the blocking of shots, it's it's like pitch perfect. Like there's not a bad shot in this whole entire film and it's not flashy because it doesn't need to be flashy, but it looks good. This is well, I mean, really, the difference between, you know, maybe we've sort of discovered the reason this movie wasn't a, a success, which is that it isn't it doesn't have what people were hoping for out of perhaps out of a crime film from this era because it doesn't have wisecracks it doesn't have film references or any pop culture references really uh, it doesn't have um the sort of stuff that tarantino is bringing to the table and, and and tacking on which may or may not have made his movies better that will depend on the individual viewer but this movie is totally has none of those aspects. It is extremely straight faced. It is very pared down. Uh, it doesn't have a bunch of, of, you know, it doesn't have quotable. It doesn't, it really, there is no quotable dialogue in the film, but it's actually, it, it, I guess, you know, it might sound like a complaint, but, but, you know, you, you know, I really respect how pared down and, uh, and simple and stripped down the dialogue is. But like the best way for me to describe the film is for anyone that's seen a simple plan and has also seen true romance. Think of those two movies because there it, it, it starts in LA and then it moves to star city. So you have mm. completely two different settings. It starts in a big city and moves to more of like a, uh, the countryside, a rural setting. Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, it's sort of like uh, the the plot of True Romance, but with the ex, but with the style of um, what was the of uh, what was the other film? A Simple Plan. Like it has the it has the stripped down, no nonsense, uh, and sort of. I mean, A Simple Plan has a different sort of setting, and it's in winter, has a different flavor. But this ha- it this has the same, and of course, Billy Bob Thornton's also involved. But this has the same sort of like just let's just do what we need to do and not add anything else. Yeah, no, but like I wouldn't go so far as to mention the Coen brothers. Like I did mention Blood Simple, but I think the Coens direct their actors and dialogue very differently. But Sam yeah, Raimi, sure. like the way he directed A Simple Plan, it feels very akin to this film. And like, I again, going back to True Romance, the fact that you have like these criminals, you have the whole plot revolving around, uh, what is it, cocaine, I think? Like $15,000 yeah, worth coke, of yeah. cocaine, it's whatever coke. it is. I don't know, coke. Yeah, the, um, the, the drug deal is really not important. The particulars of the drug deal are not important to the movie at all. No, the drugs just gets them from one place to the next place. Yeah. But, but it's no different than True Romance. And you have all of these characters to intersect throughout the whole entire film you know you have like uh, i mean you have like a bunch of like different police officers and you know you've got the criminals of course and but th- the only thing it doesn't have i mean it does have it but it doesn't have it like true romance it has a shootout at the end but mm-hmm. it's not like tarantino's shootout where you know gun- guns are blazing like ten thousand bullets yeah, yeah. flying T- tables are being overturned and there's gunpowder barrels explode no it's the, I think, and, and really, the entire climax is what, like, two minutes long. It's so short. 
like when you get the shootout, they don't all die. They almost all die because Hurricane actually does survive, but Fantasia dies and she's the first to go. And when she goes, it's not glamorous. It's like no. she gets shot in the head and she falls down and she's dead. That's some there's no like sam- flying over the table. There's no slow motion. There's no pop culture references. There's yeah. no Scarface playing in the background. It's one bullet to the head. Boom. She's dead. It's fucking straight, straight fire. Sam Peck and posh it. You love, you love to see it. You fucking love it's high it. noon. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean, it's awful and it's upsetting, but I like that. And again, this is what I talk about the movie treating you like an adult. Um, and we really, we really transitioned into heavy spoilers with absolutely no warning, but that's okay. We're going to put the warning um, in the uh, description now. Okay. But uh, anyway, when Cinda Williams takes a bullet to the fucking forehead, um, in the climax, it, it is noted like that, you know, the movie takes a moment to note, um, via edit, via the magic of editing, like that this has happened and lets it register with you. And then it's over and it like goes to the next thing. And it, it, ha- of course it hangs in the scene throughout because of the, because of the reactions of the other characters and link, but you know what I'm saying? It doesn't, it doesn't milk the moment. It does what it has to do. And it, then it goes to the next thing, even in the, in the most awful moments. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we're going to throw the movie around for a little bit longer and then we're going to get out of your way. Uh, We'll be back in a moment after this clip. And now my pick of the best film in 1992 and in recognition of the spirit of independent non-studio filmmaking, which dares to be different and critics always want that so much, I'm selecting Kyle Franklin's One False Move as the best film of 1992. This complicated thriller was gonna be sold directly into home video until it was widely praised by film critics. It begins with some brutal violence as the leader of a group of drug users and dealers kills some clients. Suddenly this unholy threesome is on the run through the Southwest going east. They're being chased by three very different cops, two from Los Angeles and their hosts, an Arkansas bumpkin played by Bill Paxton, who it will turn out has a buried relationship with one of the druggies played by Cinda Williams. Each of the six characters is well written and played. The quiet, intellectual black killer played by Michael Beach is particularly striking. Kyle Franklin's direction is fresh even in the most ordinary scenes, like an encounter with a cop at a gas station. Roger, you and I have seen scenes like this directed in standard fashion. Film students ought to look at this sequence to see how a Exciting director can really do things a little bit differently and together with a script by Billy Bob Thornton who plays the white killer and Tom Epperson Director Franklin puts a real face on crime here seeing the artistry and fresh talent in one false move gave me the greatest joy of any film this year That's why I'm putting it number one discovering a picture like this is one of the highs of being a film critic the real highs That's why it's at the top of my list. It's just below the top of my list. It's in the number two position I felt my spine tingling when I watched this movie, and I don't use that as a as a <laughs> phrase. My spine yes, it tingled. Was, it, it was did. exciting to this watch. This movie is so good; it really makes me look forward to what Carl Franklin yes. does next. And if the Academy were really looking at excellence in filmmaking, they would nominate this as one of the best fi- five films of the year instead of some bloated multi-million-dollar star vehicle that has nothing going for it except respectability and a lot of big agents involved. This is where the cutting edge of American movies is, with small pictures involving yeah. talented, dedicated people who know how to put together a scene and put together right. a story and make us really care from beginning to end about the characters. It's I was, a great film. I was surprised to it, and I like seeing it done in a very familiar genre the cross-country killers right. cop chasing we've seen 
thousands of films like this, mm -hmm. but not like this. You can always make them good. You bet. If you know how to do it. When we come back, we'll both have our complete list of the top ten films of 1992. And you might want to get your pencils ready to write down some good possibilities for renting on home video. You're back on Sorted Cinema. I think we're going to do just a quick run through the questions this week. I don't think we need to linger on this one too much longer, but uh, I do love this movie and I'm happy to talk about it in a little bit more detail. First up, best scene. Ricky, what's the best scene in this film? Or what's your favorite, rather? I, I think my favorite scene and maybe the best scene is a shootout at the end because it's devastating. Like, I did not expect them to kill Fantasia. I expected, actually, if anyone was to die, I thought maybe Dale would die. He would die the hero. He gets shot. And so he's still going to, like, survive and be looked at as a hero. And maybe he's going to move to the big city and pursue his dream to be a, a cop in the big city. Who knows? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I know that the I feel like officially the character's fate is up in the air. But something about that fade to black at the end feels deathy to me. Maybe. Anyhow, it's my favorite scene. And like what you have to remember about that scene is Fantasia gets shot in the head, like I said, but she also gets shot because she saves Dale. So mm -hmm. she's actually the true hero in this movie. Does that redeem her? Because she did kill the cop halfway through the film. She, well, she's, she murdered a cop and then she saved the cop. So it's it's uh, the, the ledger is balanced, which would make her the only one in the movie whose ledger is balanced. I think uh, if that's indeed how it works in the house of sin, um, I, I do like the, the, the climax. I, I'm going to have to give it, though, to the um, the emotional climax of the movie, which is probably not a surprise, which is uh, about 10 to 15 minutes before that, when uh, Cindy Williams and, and Bill Paxton have their uh, have it out over what happened between them when she was 17. And uh, they get into she, she, I think, quite correctly points out uh, that. Um, he was a, he, that, you know, he was on some level a, able to discard her because of her race. And she points this out in a, again, in a very straightforward way. And you see it register, uh, who knows whether it's for the first time or not, uh, in Bill Paxton's face. Uh, it's just really good, solid drama. Uh, it's, um, uh, I think it's it's and it's and it's genuinely like I think without that sequence, uh, something is really missing from the movie because it, it really is emotionally wrenching to watch, or at least I think it is. Um, this is actually a tough one, I think. Uh, MVP. First of all, I I like to not as I I, I always say this. It's it's more fun to, to leave the director out of it. Uh, that being said, I do want to say a few things about Carl Franklin. Um, even if you don't know it, you probably have watched something he's directed because he's a really amazing uh, director of television, but he's also directed a few really good films. Um, he, when I say television, I'm, I'm mainly thinking about uh, his work on The Leftovers and his work on uh, Mindhunter, uh, which I think was both superlative. He's done some other really good stuff, too, that I'm forgetting about. I don't want to make it sound like it's just those two shows. Um and here, I think he proves throughout this movie, it's just like, it's just a showcase reel of good, solid meat. Like, <laughs> I'm going to say meat and potatoes filmmaking, and it's going to sound like an like perhaps to some people like an insult, but I I I personally love meat and potatoes. Um, 
but even then he still does throw in some flair now and again, some obvious flair, like this very, this quite long take involving multiple airplanes and several trucks and actors moving around. Um, that's a little bit showy. Uh, and I just wanted to give him a little bit of praise. Uh, but I have to say for me, I think I have to give it to Billy Bob and Tom Epperson for that screenplay, because I think that's the font from which all the greatness ultimately flows. I feel like you could give it to Billy Bob just because he wrote the script and he stars in a film. Carl Franklin is a director. We always argue about this. Let's not give it to, to the director because it's the boring answer. But I feel like not a lot of people know of Carl Franklin and I think they should watch his movies. And I think at the end of the day, it's a Carl Franklin film. And I think he deserves the MVP. But if I'm not allowed to give it to the director, which I would, I'm going to give it to Bill Paxton. Because like I said, I do think he's the heart of the film. And I do think he's charming and he's the most charismatic and fun character to watch. And yes, he does have a major flaw, which we learn about towards the end of the film. But him having Mm -hmm. a flaw makes the character more interesting and makes the ending of the film even more devastating. I love Bill. I love, I mean, rest in peace to a real one. Bill Paxton fucking rocked. I mean, we've talked about this guy before, but even just the fact that he directed the fish heads video and has also been in an incredible number of great movies, directed his own amazing movie frailty, which we have talked about plenty on this podcast before you can go dig for it. Um, I just, I, he was just a really cool motherfucker as far as I can tell. And um, he brings a lot of that charm to this movie. I don't think it's necessarily his best performance ever, like I said, but he's very, very good and a, a really strong anchor for the movie, especially because, you know, the other characters um, the you know, the the shout out to the all three actors, I think, playing the, the triumvirate of, of criminals, because I think they're all great in their own quiet ways. It's just the characters are so stripped down and we we really find out about them only as much as is needed. Uh, and they're also just very realistically like loathsome. Like the Billy Bob Thornton character is just kind of a creep and a bully and unpleasant, which makes sense. So when we do our weekly questions, we always ask who the MVP is. So you're picking the writers, I'm picking the director, and if not, Bill Paxson. But I think yeah. this week we can actually pick the most underrated player because I think mm. the most underrated player in this movie, and you could choose, there's a lot of people you could choose. That's a good, th- good point. Yeah, but I think Michael Beach is fantastic as Pluto. Like, I think he's, yeah, he's amazing. Great. He has a small part out of the three criminals. Pluto has the least to say. He gets the least amount of camera time. He gets the least amount of scenes. But I think when he's like, I think he's just amazing in in his role as Pluto. Like he's he's by far the most intimidating character in the whole entire film. Yeah, well, everyone else is constantly mouthing off when, you know, doing drugs and having sex and doing a lot of stuff. And I think the 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 fun for Michael Beach in his performance is that he spends so much of the movie doing nothing. He sits there, he contemplates, he assesses the situation, and then he makes a determination correctly or incorrectly. It seems like mostly correctly. Mostly his instincts seem to be pretty good. I, I love I really like the Carl Franklin movies that I've seen. I think all base. I mean, I'm I'm sure, uh, you know, the, I'm sure he did some work from higher here or there. That's probably not that great. Uh, but I just think um, his and I, I God go watch go watch Mindhunter season two people. It's really good. That's all I have to say. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, if you could change something about this movie, Ricky, what would you change? OK, so 
I think this movie is almost perfect. But the one thing that sticks out like a sore thumb, it's when Bill Paxton meets up with the two police officers for the first time. They're driving in the car and he speeds up behind them, starts honking his horn, changes lanes. So now he's on the opposite lane and there's a truck heading towards him. And he's talking to the two cops while there's a truck heading towards him. And then, you know, he's playing all Mr. Joe cool. Like he's like Sylvester Stallone in some like, I don't know, action film. And then he dodges a truck. And I was like, that seems so out of place. Uh, I think you're, you're sort of pointing out one of the rare sort of Hollywoody moments uh, like that, like the, the, the script only has two or three of them. And I think that's one of them where like Bill Paxton basically behaves like he's Homer Simpson for about 30 seconds. And then after that transitions back into being sort of a regular doofus. Um, I was the thing I would change. I think, I think that's like, that's a good choice for a scene to tone down in some way. Um, I actually, I keep mentioning that, that the violence is really front loaded. I think to be honest, the violence is a little over the top, if anything, and just the overall, the, the opening scenes are really harsh and unpleasant in terms of like, you know, the Billy Bob Thornton character is really menacing this woman for no good reason. And, um, there's a lot of screaming and, and, you know, pain and stabbing and shooting and blood everywhere and execution style murder and, and it's so odd, be, and as as I've already mentioned. After that, there's very, very little of this that follows. There's a you know, there's some little flashes of violence here and there, but it really is all there. And um, a friend of mine, uh, after I mentioned this movie, did try to watch it, and she told me that uh, she and her viewing partner just turned it off because they found the opening so unpleasant. They asked me, "Is it worth persevering?" And I said, "And I, I'm, I haven't gotten to tell them this yet, but I'm going to say yes, please. Uh, just if anything, fast forward the the naughty bits at the beginning and." Uh, you'll you'll get to the characterization soon enough, but I do think that will probably alienate some people. So perhaps it could have been toned down a teensy bit. Uh, I have to say also as a quick side note that I actually really didn't like that scene where um, where he overhears them uh, talking about what a what a doofus he is and what a, what a hick he is. I do like I mean, Bill Paxton's performance at the end of the scene when he's like clearly uh, obviously very upset. Uh, but you know trying to play it off as cool is great but i just i didn't like the blocking of like i don't know it just seemed like kind of again kind of a groany hollywood contrivance that these guys wouldn't think to uh to mind how loud they're talking about a guy in his own in his own hometown you know like it's just a little bit silly you know it's 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 so um interesting going back and looking at my list of the best movies in 1992 because i think i placed this movie way too low i would actually move it up to the top 10 1992 was a year of like twin peaks unforgiven malcolm x reservoir dogs hardboiled like those are the ones that really stand out i think uh, i think this movie can land on the top 10 i mean it's it's really good i i don't think it's i mean if you're talking about nineties neo-noir, I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I'm bad about thinking about movies in individual years, but like, if I think about them as a group, I don't know if this is quite like top, top tier, but it's definitely like in the a minus contingent. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, not, I, like, I'm not looking at the entire decade. I'm looking yeah, at specifically yeah, yeah. 1992. For sure. Like, I don't think it's quite as good as, uh, 
like you said, I don't think I don't think it's quite in Coen Brothers like No Country or Fargo League, although it has some similarities to both of those movies. Um, but I do think it's just like I do think it's better than Red Rock West. And I do think it's better than some of the other ones uh, from that period. People really like I, I, I and I also have to say I like it a smidge better than Devil in a Blue Dress. But I do really like Devil in a Blue Dress. That movie whips and we should talk about it at some point. Anyway, I think that's about all I have to say about uh, this movie. Uh, what about you? Oh, right. Do you want? Do you want to do? Do you want to do the? Do you want to do the? You want to do the test? We can do the test. I want to do the test. The question that you hate doing. So it's basically: yeah. Does this movie have three great scenes and no bad scenes? I don't know. I, to be honest, I don't know if it has three great scenes, but I definitely know it doesn't have any bad ones. So that's the thing. So if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, we like to ask this question because. It's very hard to find a movie with three like great scenes, like three iconic scenes, three scenes that, you know, will be talked about and written about from like 10, 20, 30 years from now, but also to not have any bad scenes. So I don't think the movie actually has a bad scene. Like I can nitpick and want to change that one scene I just mentioned a few minutes ago, but I don't think it's actually a bad scene, but I don't think it has three great scenes. I think it's just a really solid film from start to finish. Yeah. But I can't say it has three. Like, what, what is the great scene in this movie? Like, what yeah, is. Yeah, no. I mean, I, th- there are scenes that I personally love. There's shots I love. Like, I mentioned the, um, uh, the already the, the long take at the, uh, at the sort of highway crossing point where Fantasia meets her brother. But that's a, a camera like shot. That. It's not a scene. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. There's, there's moments there, but it's really not a movie. It's, uh, it's, it's not a movie about sort of trying to, sh- to trying to showboat you with an individual single. Uh, flashy sequence in a Tarantino-ish fashion, as I already said, it's really more about the whole than about the uh, individual than the, about the individual scenes quite as much. There's a lot of scenes I'll think about. Like I'll think about the scene when they stop at the gas station, and they go into the store to buy whatever they're going to yeah, buy. Yeah. Like, and then the cop walks in, and there's a little bit of tension, but it's not a great scene. It's a typical scene you've seen in a million movies. Uh, anyway, that's the movie. I think, yeah, it's it's for. It's for anyone who likes fucking if you if you like neo-noirs or noirs of any kind, crime thrillers, Elmore Leonard books, um, you know, you need to see this movie. Uh, I think you're generally really going to dig it. I have one last question for you before we we sign off, because I'm going to be playing a bit of the soundtrack at the end of the, yeah. at the end of the podcast. What did you think of the soundtrack? Because it's such um, an unusual soundtrack and you're like the music guy. It is unusual because it's so 80s, um, which I think probably um, I think that's probably the biggest sign of its of its direct video roots is that score. Um, but I don't hate it. I kind of like all that wailing sax, which even though it kind of feels out of place because like, why isn't there any country music? Uh, I don't know. The score is weird, but I don't hate it. I, it There's a bit of twang, it, though. There's a little, there's some occasional twang, but I don't know. I mostly notice the saxophone, uh, but I, I don't know. I, the score is kind of goofy, but I don't hate it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we should wrap it up. Um, what are we doing next week, Ricky? We should be doing the matrix next week. That should be fun. And then the week after we should be doing a Paul Verhoeven film. And we haven't figured this out yet, but I do want to do an episode about succession at some point after the, after this season is over. Uh, yeah. So thanks for listening. The podcast is sorted cinema. You can find us at SortedCinema.com, and you can find the podcast on YouTube and Spotify, Apple Music, all those great places. And uh, you can find Ricky and the podcast uh, on Twitter at 
it's all sorted cinema. cinema. It's all sorted cinema. It's go to sortedcinema.com and like you said, you can listen to the podcast everywhere. I don't know. For some reason, a lot of people listen to the podcast on YouTube. I mean, I get it. I do listen to some shows on YouTube, but that's because they're not available. I guess maybe they are. I don't know. But yeah, you can listen to iTunes. You can listen to Spotify. I, I mean, Spotify is the place to go, right? But yeah, if you want to listen on YouTube, then sure, go for it. All right. Anyway, we got to go. Uh, we'll talk to y'all next week. Thank you.